The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. What you need is God. Today may be a sun-shining day in your life with the fall colors all ablaze in their glory, the temperature just right, enough money in your wallet and no aches or pains, everything just so. And what you really need is God. But on the other hand, today may be overcast and drizzling in your life, or perhaps it's downright pouring. You're shivering cold, flat, broke, and racked with pain, or maybe actually even dying. But what you really need is God. It doesn't matter the circumstances in life. Our need is all the same. Yes, of course, there may be some physical, tangible things, some material things that we do need, but if we were to receive all of them in abundance and not get God, we'd be paupers in this world and in the next. What you really need is God. And the tragedy is that you can't have Him. Not in yourself. We in ourselves can't get God. We drive Him away, in fact. But thanks be to God who in His great mercy, to the praise of His glorious grace, has made a way for we people to be joined back to Him and to get that which we most need. He's made a way. A way. He's made a place in which, at which, we can meet with Him and have Him. What a treasure. The thing we most need provided. We're going to look at some of that this morning in our passage. Today we're looking at the last half of John chapter 2. We've been in John for a few weeks now. What we're going to find here is another piece in this new and better section. Two weeks ago we saw in the end of chapter 1 Jesus claiming that he is the new and better Jacob. He was renamed Israel. The new and better Jacob upon whom and then through whom ultimately all the covenant blessings are poured out. And last week... Subtly, he communicated that he is the one who brings the new and better wine. He's the one who sets the messianic banquet table, replete with a joyous party and celebration, the wine symbolizing that. And this week, we're going to find that he is the new and better temple, the place where we can meet with God. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. And we'll look at it a little more closely and see what it says about Jesus and how that's supposed to strengthen our faith. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, John chapter 2, 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about his body, the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Back in verse 12, we see the transition from the wedding in Cana. They went down to Capernaum and stayed there for a few days, probably until it was time for the Passover, time to go up to Jerusalem. That's verse 13. The Passover, you'll recall, was one of the great feasts of Judaism, which the Jews gathered together to celebrate the time back in the slavery in Egypt. We've talked about this before. Back in the slavery in Egypt when God's wrath had reached its climax against Egypt and he had determined to move through the land and kill every firstborn thing except amongst those who were hiding themselves under the blood of the slain lamb. Those who hid under that blood he would pass over and not strike with his wrath. That happened and then every year after that the Jews celebrated that and that's what Passover was celebrating the lamb slain to provide shelter from the wrath of God. And it was Passover time, so Jesus went to Jerusalem, like most able-bodied men would have. And while there, naturally, he went to the temple to offer sacrifice and to worship. Now, the temple area was a large complex, really. There were numerous buildings and large outer courts, and so you would first enter through the outer courts, He'd come first to the courts that were reserved for the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further in. And when he got there, what he saw deeply disturbed him. Try to imagine it like this. Put yourself into the place of a first century worshiper here at the temple. Think about this. You're pressing towards the high white walls of the temple early one morning. Your daughter lies sick at home, feverish, pale, shaking. The fever just must break or she very very well may die. You've tried everything you know. The doctors are no longer of any help. She can barely drink. She's dehydrated. She's in danger. You're desperate. You've been praying to your gods. After all, you're a Gentile, so you're praying to all of your gods repeatedly But the heavens are silent and nothing happens. And so out of desperation, why this occurred to you, you have no idea. But today you get up and you think, I'm going to go to the temple of the Jews. Maybe that will help. And so you get up and you go there and you're pressing towards those white walls one morning. Early. 
just as they open. The gate opens and you move in. You come in and you find a place. You fall down on your knees and then on your face and all the tears that you've been holding back and stuffing in, they finally break forth and they rush out. God, whoever you are, have mercy on me, a sinner. You sob and you cry and you tear your cloak in anguish and in repentance. You plead your ignorance and your hope and you ask God, God, show me what is true, who you are, and if you would have mercy on my dying daughter. And just as you get to the part about pleading for your daughter's life, you start to hear the commotion in the background. At first you ignore it and you keep praying, but eventually you just have to look because there is so much noise. You turn around, you look. Cattle everywhere, lots of them coming in. And then they set up the sheep stall right behind you. And the smell... And then somebody shouts at you, you, out of the way, that's where I put the cash register. So you pushed off to the side. It's, it's a din in here now. The stomping of the cattle, the bleeding of the sheep, and the cooing of the pigeons, and the ringing of the coins. The merchants shouting out their prices, and the pilgrims lined up to change in their foreign money so they can get the local currency, so they can then buy their sacrifices. I mean, I guess they have to do that somewhere, but here? What's going on? I thought I was supposed to come here to pray. Is this not the house of the God of Israel, who claims to be the God of all the nations, in fact? Does he not invite even people like me to come here to this temple to seek him and to pray and petition him and pour out my heart? Is it not supposed to happen here? But his people seem more interested in doing business. And I've been relegated off to the side to praying in what amounts to a mix between a barnyard and a marketplace. What's the deal? Well, you sit there in puzzled disappointment. Something else starts to happen. You didn't actually see it start, but something clearly is going on over there. Off in the corner, there is this Jewish worshiper who is ticked. He's driving before him, all the animals flailing away at them, pushing them towards the gate. And the crowds are backpedaling, the merchants scattering. He just threw over a table, and all the money's bouncing around the ground, and people are scrambling to pick it up. He's shooing people away, and no one's fighting back. Actually, kind of amazed. It's not a riot or anything. That he seems so strangely possessed that no one dares oppose him. They're just fleeing away from him. And he's shouting out, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. Amen to that. Now he's nearly swept the place clean. There's not really much left in here anymore. There are a few other guys who kind of seemed to be with him but didn't actually do anything. A few other people who are kind of around looking amongst the stalls and the pens, things scattered here and there. And here come some other guys. And judging by how they're dressed, I bet they're the guys in charge. And they say to him, What are you doing? What gives you the right to do this? Verse 18. What sign do you give us 
gives you the right to do this? And he answers back to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they laugh. (laughs) They scoff at him. You're out of your mind. It took us decades to build this place and it isn't even yet quite finished and you want us to tear it down and then you're going to show your power by rebuilding it in three days. Right. That's not going to happen. You are a nut. He doesn't respond. He just walks right by them and leaves. Then they look around and they leave. And then in the quiet, you wonder what all of this means. And then in peace, you begin to pray again. That's the scene in our text. What does it all mean? Clearly, it's reviewing some other aspect of Jesus to us, but, but what? Last week we saw that the first of Jesus' signs was, was very quiet, very subtle. He displayed some of his majesty then, but there were large numbers of people within a few yards of him who had no idea that anything out of the ordinary had even happened. It was a significant sign. The water turned into wine, but very quiet. And this is the opposite end of the spectrum. It would have been hard for anyone near this at all to have not known something had happened. You can picture all the animals and the people flooding out of the temple into the streets and the gossip for days and the authorities alerted and taking some security measures perhaps. This is clear on the other end of the spectrum. What does it all mean? Well, taken as a whole, this passage is pressing upon us this hope. You can write this down. The promised intimacy with God has come in Christ. Trust Him in His Word. I'll say that again. The promised intimacy with God has come in Christ. So trust Him in His Word. Throughout the ages, down through the Scriptures, intimacy with God, the thing that we most need, had been held out in a promise, and now it has come in Christ. So trust Him. And trust that Word that prophesied it all along and proved truthful. That's where we're going this morning. That's the main point here. I'm going to approach that through three sub-points. The first two are kind of foundational, work together, and the third one is a, a point of response. So the first point, first foundational point, is concerned with the first half of the passage when Jesus cleans out the temple. Here it is. The promise of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. This long, long talked about promised Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. In this one, Christ, the anointed deliverer. Those promises made rest on Him. On the surface, what we see here is some guy who's cleaning up some obvious religious corruption. That's, that's obvious. But there's more to this. And he cleans out the temple. There's, there's more going on there. And that's how it connects back to Psalm 69. If your Bible probably has a little footnote from verse 17. There's a quote there from Psalm 69. If you want, you can glance back, but I'm going to breeze through that in just a minute. But you, if you think about how we went through some of those psalms back in July and August, what we saw in those psalms is that many times the psalmist, the writer, or David perhaps, the one who wrote many of them, those psalms are coming out of the real life experience of the writer. 
He's dealing with something. He's struggling with something. He's hoping for something. He's in anguish over something. And so he writes this poetic prayer song, hoping and praying and asking or rejoicing perhaps. So the psalm is. So they're about, say, David. They're about his life. But, as we saw many times, many things in those psalms kind of stretch beyond just King David in 1000 B.C. They push or pull beyond him. There's some things there that are hard to see, just contained in that one person's life. It transcends him. You pull many of these things out of different psalms and combine them with other passages like the, the covenant to King David. And what forms here is this picture of a Messiah, an anointed deliverer, a greater David, a greater king who would come and fully deliver in astounding ways. Remember Psalm 2, the, the great son. We talked about some of these things before. There's an expectation established of a coming Messiah. And Psalm 69 is one of those types of psalms. fits into this pattern. In this psalm, David is being attacked by strong enemies who hate him without cause. They're against him. He's suffering under their oppression. They're actually seeking to destroy him. And he says in verse 7, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. It's not a word we commonly use. It means dishonor or shame. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. It's using those words in parallel there. Reproach and dishonor. For your sake, God, I've borne this dishonor and this reproach. Well, why is that? Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches, the dishonor, the shame, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. For the dishonor of those who dishonor you have fallen on me. The people who are against God, David's for God, so therefore they're against David. You see how that's working out. David is zealous for the honor of God and for the purity of his house, the temple. In, in, in being zealous for that temple, what he's zealous for is right and proper worship. Honor for God and proper connection of people to God. That's what he's zealous for. He's zealous. He's, he's not just kind of gently inclined if it happens. He is internally convicted. He's bent that way. And that presents a problem because he's surrounded all around by powerful people who are not bent that way. Are zealous for some other things and so they oppose him. They persecute him. They heap upon him scorn and they actually seek his destruction. That's Psalm 69, the life of King David. And it's the life of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he, like David, but more than David, will share this zeal for God's honor, God's house, right worship. He, like David, but more than David, will be opposed by people who don't share that zeal. The Messiah, the one who's going to come and he's going to reign over the righteous in the land, but first he's going to have to deal with the wicked in the land, those who oppose God. This comes from Psalm 69, from other places in the Psalms. It fits well with other ideas like 
the last verse of the book of Zechariah says that in that day, it's the last verse of Zechariah, the day of the Messiah, the great day at the end, there will be no more traitor with a D, no more merchant in the house of God. The implication is that the Messiah would clean them out. This is the expectation of the Old Testament. It's yet another aspect of what God's chosen one, this Messiah, would be like. What he would do. He'd be fervent for right and pure worship for God, but opposed by other people, chastised by them, scorned, rebuked. Actually, they seek his destruction. And on this day in the temple, Jesus steps right into the middle of this expectation. He fully embraces it. He is filled with firm resolve that this his father's house Notice he says, his father, my father. He personally claims him. He doesn't talk about him abstractly as the father. It's his father. It's a little unique. That this, my father's house, should not be defiled and turned into a market. It's to be a house of prayer, not a barnyard. And it's to be a house of prayer for all sorts of people from all over the nations. Not just for Jews. The court of the Gentiles is not a place for some people to do business consumed with zeal. He's fervent to fix this evil for the honor of God and for the good of people who seek Him. This itself is a sign that we should note. It's a sign. It fits right in with Psalm 69. fits right in with Zechariah and other passages. This is who the Messiah was foretold to be, and Jesus steps right into this aspect of the Messiah as well. He's zealous for it. He cleans out the traitors, and he says, I am the one. It's as if God says, this is the one. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is the one you've been looking for. Don't go anywhere else. God here is radically Jesus-centered. It keeps boiling down to Jesus. We should note that because our lives should also keep boiling down to Jesus. Jesus is not meant to be added onto the side, front and center. God repeatedly exalts Christ, so should we. We should note this. But is that all that's here? Is that it? I mean, that's significant. But is this Messiah Jesus' zeal for cleaning out this temple so that God and people can be joined together, is that zeal just constrained and restrained to this physical old building? I hope not, because that building doesn't exist anymore. There's more here than just that. It takes us on to the second point. The second foundational point is related to the sign that Jesus offers up to them in the second half of the passage, verse 19. He invites them to utterly destroy this temple. And obviously, having read the text, we know that Jesus is talking on a couple of different levels here. The, the Jewish the people who are questioning him, though, they latch onto the physical, the literal level, and they, they think he's talking about this building right that they're standing in, actually, and they scorn him for it. But obviously, he's talking about more than that. Here's the second point. The promised Messiah Jesus brings about full 
intimacy with God. The promised Messiah Jesus, that's kind of the first point there, that the promised Messiah is Jesus. The promised Messiah Jesus does something. He brings about full intimacy with God. Not the limited intimacy of the old temple, but intimacy between God and people in a new and better temple. We think about how Jesus brings about full intimacy. We must first discuss the temple building itself and how it's functioning. So I'm going to talk about that for a second, but keep in mind that the subject that I'm working on is Jesus bringing full intimacy. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a detour here and kind of come around the back way. I, I will come back to this subject. But first, think about the temple. The temple was a permanent structure that replaced the tabernacle tent. When Israel was wandering through the desert for 40 years, God gave them instruction, detailed instruction, about how to build this complicated tent. And this tent had a couple different layers to it, and it was in amongst the people. And so you have the people, and then this, the structure, and then in the center of it is where God actually dwelt in their midst. And then when they settled in Jerusalem, they replaced that movable tent with a, a solid structure, the temple. You can kind of think of the temple then, or, or the old tabernacle, as kind of like concentric squares. Squares that get larger and larger and larger, but there's a, a single center point. You can kind of think of it like that. And what that center point is, it's called the most holy place. In there, that's where God dwelled. Now, of course, God dwells everywhere in all of the creation. He's everywhere throughout all the globe, but he is uniquely here manifests himself differently here in glory and in power. He's here in a cloud, it said, above the seat of atonement, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And usually that Ark, not always, but usually that Ark was within this most holy place, which itself was within the holy place, which itself was within the sanctuary, which was within other courts, etc., etc., in the city, in the people, in the nation, these concentric squares. Now, there were stringent requirements for being ritually clean and having certain sacrifices and being of a certain family and then only at certain times. And if you met all of these requirements, then you could pass in, in, in. But eventually, everybody came to a point beyond which they could go no further. In the last step, no closer access. Think about that. What is all of that trying to communicate? God is everywhere. Old Testament believers clearly commune with God in their hearts. But in this temple structure, God is trying to, in that time, in a very concrete way, communicate something. Trying to show us something. In, the, in all of the world, in all the creation, in all the world, God uniquely dwells in one nation, in one city, in one temple, in one room, in, 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 in. He uniquely dwells right there, and you can't go there. That's where He is, and you can't go. Very concrete terms. If you are of a certain race and a certain gender and you do certain things to deal with a whole host of sins and defilements, then you can come close. 
but not fully. Finally, at the end, you're stopped. You can't come fully into His very presence. Only one man, once a year, could ever do that. Maybe I could put it like this. You can be led to water, but you're not allowed to drink. You are, you are commanded, come, but the door is barred. Come again and again. Bring another bloody sacrifice to pay for your most recent sins. Come and look at the closed door. The way in is not opened. This beautiful temple is simultaneously communicating two things. Proximity, God of all the universe is right here in our midst, in our city, and distance. I can't go there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. There in the heavenlies, behind the veil, always, from the very beginning, not here, But then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John chapter 1. The place where God dwells, that temple, that building, was an Old Testament type, a model, a concrete prophecy pointing forward towards something, towards someone, a new and better place where God would dwell and meet with people, the body of Jesus in which all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. To Him we can come and find access. In this new and better place, the door stands open and the veil has been torn asunder. By faith, not physically, certainly not by anything that we do, but by faith and faith alone, we can come to Jesus and come into Jesus Communion with God the Son, and in Him, communion with God the Father. We have access to the Son or access to the Father? Yes. Both. One God in three persons. What you most need, you have in Christ. Access to Him. Intimacy with Him. Think about this. Roll it around in your mind and in your heart for a few minutes. You used to be separated from Him, held off. Separated by the nature of God that is holy and just. and Burns with equal zeal against sin. That used to hold you off, but this holy justice is no longer a problem if you've closed with Christ not a problem, it's actually your pleasure now because this holy justice guarantees that He will one day set all things right in His own time as He knows best, but He will do it because that is His nature. You delight in His holy justice now. 
In Christ we can draw near to Him. Cleaned. Pure. You can come and you can rest in the arms of the Father. Mighty arms. You can taste His great power that is for you. Power like that displayed when He raised Christ from the dead. You can experience that. You can know His vast wisdom and His wide and long and high and deep love for you. All the way in, you can come to Him fully now in Christ by faith. In Christ, God the Father shows us no more wrath, condemnation, but only grace. We stand as objects of love. A delight to Him, in fact. Can you imagine that? That you can be, or if you're in Christ already, you are a delight to God. It's marvelous to think about. This requires thinking. This requires reflection. You roll this around a little bit and marvel at it. You can experience the love of God poured out on you unhindered by sin. Not limited by any desire on His part or any ability on His part or any problem on your part. God can love you fully. He wants to love you fully and He does love you fully. If you're in Christ by faith, met together with Him, joined to Him fully. If this is true, and it is, Christian, if this is true, this should drastically affect how you view all of the light and momentary troubles of this life. And it should drastically affect how stridently you seek after Christ and how firmly you grasp Him and hold on to Him. He is the greatest treasure possible. Look what He has bought for you. Intimacy with God. Access to the One for whom you were made. That should stir you. If it doesn't, you're not paying attention. God wants to move you with that and constantly move you with that. Pay attention to His desires. You sit in His presence in the throne room in the Holy of Holies and you are fabulously rich because you have Him and you have access to Him. Don't turn away from Him. Stay there. Don't leave and then come visit. Stay. Behold Him. And then think, what what in the world does sin, my flesh, Satan have to offer me that could possibly compare to this majesty? Nothing. Sacrifice has opened the way for you. Jesus is a new and better temple. But if you don't come to Him, you remain outside If you don't come into this temple, you remain outside and there is no longer any sacrifice for sin left. No temple anywhere. No other sacrifice of any sort avails 
for anything. Only this temple and only His sacrifice. Come. Come fully in and find that which you most need. Those two parts together are the foundational truth in this passage, but it calls for a response. That's the third point. You find this in verse 22, and here it is summarized. Believe in Christ and in the Scriptures. Believe in Christ and in the Scriptures. The focus of John's application this morning is very similar to last week. We saw up in, in verse 11 where... The disciples saw the sign, they saw some aspect of Jesus' glory, and they responded by believing in Him, entrusting themselves more fully to Him, and reckoning Him to be even more so all that they need. It was last week, and today it's something similar, but a tad different. Again, today there's an aspect of Jesus seen. He's the Messiah. He's the new and better temple in which we meet with God. He's the one who restores his pure worship. He's the one we've been waiting for. But then after that happened, there was this puzzling statement about him raising up this temple in three days. It didn't quite make sense to them. It's not confusing to us because we've read the whole story, but for a while it threw them for a loop. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they realized he's talking about himself. Like puzzle pieces that they kind of kept turning until the Spirit came and lived inside of them and they saw the events unfold and they realized that's what he was talking about. His zeal for right and pure worship had set him against others and others against him and they had so opposed him that they sought his destruction and they killed him. Just like Psalm 69 had said. But, three days later, just like Jesus had said, He came up from the grave alive. And they remembered this. The text twice says they remembered these things. They remembered this, and then they believed the Scriptures and the Word. In verse 11, they believed in Him. Here the slight difference, a different emphasis, is they believed in the Scriptures and the Word of Jesus. Emphasis falls here on the trustworthiness of God's Word, whether written in the Old Testament or spoken by God in the flesh, Jesus. The Scriptures had predicted a coming Messiah, and a thousand years later, Jesus stands in the temple and fulfills that. A lot of things happened in there, a lot of confusion, a lot of twists and turns, but God was faithful to carry out His Word, and it came to be. It happened like it was said it would happen. And the Scripture predicted that many around him would oppose him and that the zeal of his would eventually lead to his destruction. And that happened too. And the Scripture also predicted that God would not let his Holy One see decay, but would bring him back up from the dead. And Jesus reiterated that. And that happened too. We're not talking about a faith that is finally based on my internal persuasion. We're talking about a faith that is based on some fact foretold and occurring in history. Radically different. They saw the things happen. They remembered that they had been written and they believed the Scripture and they believed God's Word. Brothers and sisters, if it is written, it will come to pass. 
It is trustworthy. You should build your life on it. The grass may wither. Flowers may fail, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Trust it and entrust yourself to it. A thousand years between Psalm 69 and the temple. Three long days between the cross and the resurrection. Maybe it's been many long nights or many long years in your particular struggle. I don't know what what you're dealing with, what you're going through. Perhaps it seems to you that God is such a way out here on a limb somewhere and then left you there. Or perhaps given you some tremendously difficult or hard to believe or hard to understand instructions and guidance in His Word. Forgive that person? What? Continue to trust God amidst this disease? Give up those career aspirations that I guess were kind of coming from me and not really from you? I'm supposed to give how much money to God and to His work? Stay married to this person? What? The Scripture is true, trustworthy, and reliable. And it is not given to you by God in malice. You're joined to Him. He has love for you that is vast, wide, long, high, and deep. And He gives you His Word to guide you for your good. To guide you in the path to walk on and to guide you back to Him. Trust Him. You're meant to look at your life circumstances and the things that were written about them, the instruction or the guidance or the plan or whatever, and as you weigh that, to also take into account other things in life that were written about and came to pass and showed the goodness and the glory of God and His love for His people and His steadfastness. And you say, that happened. This can't happen too. And because I know God's nature and His stance towards me, I believe Him. I'll obey Him. I'll trust Him and His Word. What you most need is God. You meet Him in God the Son. And He guides you through His Word. The promised intimacy with God has come in Christ. So trust Him and His Word. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.